and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And in this week we are reviewing episode five, which is Oxygen. Yes, it is. An episode that I've really, really been looking forward to. Really? Why's that? I think just the imagery we'd been getting of it, even before we had a specific trailer for it, you know, we had seen still photos from it. We'd heard bits and pieces about it on the grapevine. Well, I'm saying we. I'm really talking about myself in the third person there. <laughs> um, I should not do that. And just the fact that it, it's it's up in space and it's like, oh, is this like a 70s episode? Is this like the Ark in space? Oh, gosh, what could this be? And then as we got more and more bits and pieces about it, particularly the trailer last week, I was thinking... This looks really spooky. This looks really good. Of course, it's Jamie Matheson who has written one of my favourite episodes in the form of Mummy on the Orient Express. He's also written Flatline, which people rave about, although I don't see much in. But clearly, he's a great writer. Clearly, he gets Doctor Who. Come on, this could be a good one. Interesting. Well, I'll be very interested to see if it lived up to your expectations. Alrighty. Well, should we start with our words of the week, which may give some clues or, or may give no clues? Okay, well, I'll give you mine. And my word for the week this week is cold. Cold. Okay. My word is neighbouring. I can't even begin to speculate what that could be about. Yeah, neighbouring. Okay. So, what did you think, Rob? Well, we go all over the place in these reviews, so I think I'm okay in just diving into the guts of it. The concept, we again have an enemy, a threat, that's a technology that's just doing its thing. It's an enemy that's not an enemy. It joins the sentient engine oil, the microbots gone wrong, the animal that was chained up, and some wood lice as being something that is, again, the enemy, but it's not the enemy. And I thought, really? Are we really going there again? Oh, my God. Interesting. I actually didn't pick up on that, perhaps because I thought that the real enemy was the corporation rather than the suits, and they were merely the tool. Indeed, and I guess you could say the same in Thin Ice. The enemy was the uh, the racist bastard who had chained up had chained up the animal and not the animal itself. However, the animal was the one eating people. The animal was the thing we were scared of for most of the episode. So I, I, I can see what you're saying, absolutely. And again, I can see that in Thin Ice. But just on the surface, if you will, the, the basic threat, the suits that are killing us, are just doing their thing. They're, they're, they're not evil per se. No, you're absolutely right. You, you, you're not wrong at all. And, uh, yeah, I realise that. Interesting. Mm. Now, I, mean, I don't know about you, Dave, but surely this can't be coincidental. You know, surely Moffat's not sitting there, you know, script editing these and having a look at all the stories and thinking, yep, yep, and, and not seeing this. Uh, how long can it last? I mean, I've, I've said before, I think, we're going to have some real nasties coming up later in the year. Surely things change a bit and we just get some, some people or some creatures who are just evil. Well, it depends, I guess, on whether the cart or the horse is being put first. Did Moffat say to the writers he was hiring, this is the tone and the theme for the whole season or the first half of the season or whatever it turns out to be, work this theme into your episode? Or is it that they came back with this and he said, that's okay, I'm, I'm happy to run with this? Now, if it is the former or any variation of the former, then maybe you're right in that they're setting up for a particularly nasty bad, and they really want to maximise that contrast with what's come before. Well, it certainly will contrast, um, That that's for sure. And, I mean, added to this, you know, technology gone bad, however you want to put it, we have 
everyone lives. Well, almost everyone lives. Towards the end of the episode, I was thinking, you know what? If Bill's not really dead, they're going to have to bring her back. Does that mean everyone else is going to get brought back? Oh, my God, not this again. But thankfully, thankfully, Dave, some of them stay dead, which is what I actually wanted to happen last week in Knock Knock. You know, the Woodlights, okay, they can bring back some of them, but what if some of Bill's friends stayed dead? Just to ratchet up that there was some actual tension, something big actually did happen, you know, and it just wasn't a jolly romp and everyone comes back to life. Here, I think it was done better that, you know, some of those crew members were absolutely dead. They stayed dead. Uh, but Bill got lucky with the uh, the power in her suit not being enough to, to kill her, it seems. Yeah, I was the same as you. I genuinely thought for a few moments there that they were all going to come back to life, and they didn't, and that was the right decision to make dramatically, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the guts of the episode that I've just blurted out. Uh, what were your thoughts on the, the guts of the story? I actually came to this having on Friday night gone to see Alien Covenant. Ooh, scary. And about three weeks before that, I saw the movie Life. Okay. Uh, which is a basically an alien ripoff, but done very well. And I had those very sort of hard science fiction space movies in my mind as I went into this. And I did think this did a very good job of being a, a good space-based science fiction episode. It was conceptually interesting. It really played on that use of space. You know, this wasn't just a case of, say, the space station in the long game, mm. which, which okay, it, it is a space station, but it could just as well be on a planet. It could be, it could be anywhere. There's never that sense of really being in space. This absolutely made use of the fact that they were in space, and it worked its way through the episode right from Capaldi's opening dialogue through through to the conclusion and i i really quite enjoyed this episode it, it wasn't an instant classic but i was intrigued by it i was enjoying it i will say i did pick every twist before it happened yeah. which is rare because i'm not one of these viewers that sits there sort of with a mind overworking looking for the twist and trying to find the twist i like to let it i like to let episodes just throw themselves over me yeah but this, this one, I did see, I think, pretty much every twist coming before it came. And that joins every episode, this series so far, insofar as being reasonably basic. And I don't say that in a bad way. No, it's it's another straightforward adventure. And I'm really enjoying this. This, this is the first time, I think, ever in the new series that I have enjoyed the first five episodes in a row. Yeah. Every other one, there's been a dud in there somewhere. These are five episodes that I can say I have enjoyed in a row. I'm looking forward to the next week. And interestingly, in my circle of friends, I've got a number of friends who are long-time Doctor Who fans that grew up with the classic series, and they're not involved in fandom now, and they don't listen to podcasts, let alone make podcasts. Mm. And often they've sort of drifted in and out of the new series. Every one of them that I've spoken to is loving this series, is back on board with Doctor Who, and is actively getting excited and looking forward to the next episode. So this this vibe that they've hit, this tone that they've struck, I think is being very successful with our demographic. I can't comment on what it's like with that younger demographic or that newer fan demographic, but with our demographic, I think this is really hitting a strong note of just fun adventures in time and space. I, 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 I keep saying it every week, Rob. Good fun adventures in time and space. Mm. That's what Doctor Who is for me, and my 
goodness, this series is just delivering, don't you think? I think so. I think so. And I think this is the kind of Doctor Who we've long been saying that Chibnall will be bringing, this more populist kind of straightforward simple, if you will, Doctor Who, straightforward adventures. It's almost like Moffat is stealing a march on him. There are still some Moffat tropes going on. There's still a whiff of the Moff, if I can put it that way, about this. (laughs) Um, You know, it still feels like it's got his fingerprints on it. But it maybe feels more like what next series might be like than perhaps some were expecting. I think I was expecting it to be more like this, but I think some might have still expected Moffat to come out with some huge timey-wimey, brain-twisting, life-shredding arc, uh, and it hasn't been that, at least yet. And, I mean, we're five episodes in, so, you know, there's not that many to go. Yeah, no, I I didn't know whether to expect this or not. I certainly hoped for it, and having hoped for it and received it, I'm going to be effusive in my praise for what they're doing. I mean, five episodes in a row without a doubt. That's that's a pretty good run for Doctor Who, which, I mean, you know, Doctor Who... Is such a hard series to land because it's different every week and it's mm. you know hard to strike and so you often get duds flown up here and there. Uh, five in a row without a dud, gee, we're doing well. And you know, I've been you know pitching it around the six and seven mark out of ten for most of it, um, which aren't bad marks, but are showing that it's just good, straightforward Doctor Who. And you know what? Perhaps that's the secret. Perhaps if you don't try and overreach and do something that might really, really land or be really, really stupid, um, you can just do week-to-week decent episodes if you're, if you're not overreaching, if you know what I mean. No, I think that's, yeah, that's perhaps a really good point. Uh, don't, don't knock the formula. Yeah. Now, you mentioned space, and I, I liked how space was treated here as well, like the uh, the, the, the silences they're floating along. Um, obviously, they've got their communications, but... It reminded me of, I don't know, there's an episode of Firefly where they're doing a heist and it's in space. Obviously, The Expanse makes use of uh, stuff like that. And the the craft itself, the station, do you think that was a model? It didn't look like CGI to me. Um, I assumed it was CGI. I'd have to go back and have another look, but I thought it was CGI. Interesting. Unless it's CGI that they've made to look like a model. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at it thinking, gosh, this, this could actually be a model. This is really cool stuff. I don't know. I think perhaps because I was more struck by the background of it, I thought the way they composed those space shots was really, really quite elegantly done and looked really, really good. But but you're right. They space space was almost a character in this story. Yes. And and I really like the way that they did that. And it's not one that Doctor Who does a lot, particularly the new series, which has tended sometimes to shy away a bit from that more harder edged sci-fi. For, for it to embrace it this this well, I thought it was a really good thing, and I, I get why you wouldn't want to do this on a regular basis. Hmm. But this time, I thought it worked really, really well, right down to the way that they talked about the way the suits worked, and that you needed the helmet for the pressure, not the oxygen, and so it, it allowed you the, the ability to ratchet up the space tension. I, I think I've just coined a Terry Nation phrase there: space tension. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like an illness you might get or something and need to go to sickbay. Uh, shall we talk about the cast? Yes, let's go. 
the Doctor. I thought he was back to his fluffy best, back to the pilot sort of levels here with the lecturing. You know, I thought that was really great. I love that he's talking about space, but it was really meant to be about crop rotation or something. I actually laughed out loud when <laughs> when that gag landed. And I don't normally laugh out loud at things. Even when I type things like LOL, you know, when I'm talk- talking to people or when people tell a funny joke, I often don't laugh. But I mm. genuinely laughed when she said, this is meant to be about crop rotation. <laughs> Because I just thought how how bizarre that would be to be in that lecture. I think it's one thing you can say about Jamie Matheson's writing is he absolutely gets Capaldi's Doctor, Mm. arguably more than perhaps any other writer. I'd agree with that. Even in Flatline, which I don't like, the Doctor is fantastic. But in his other episodes as well, yes. he, Gosh, Jamie Matheson for showrunner. Wouldn't that have been great? Well, certainly, if he if he could have done the season with Capaldi, I think that would have been fantastic because he he gets that Capaldi balance between, as you say, the, the the whimsy and the clever and the funny, and also the deadly serious and the old and the uh, pragmatic, mm. and we see we see that arch pragmatism in Capaldi in this episode, where he doesn't give comfort to Bill. And it's later explained in a really you know, appropriate way that that's because if he'd done that, it would have informed the suits of what he was planning. Exactly right. Or yeah. what he knew. So it, was, it, it wasn't just done because, hey, we need to make him look like a bit of a prick now, but he was made to look like a bit of a prick because he was being archly pragmatic. Mm. And that's, that's, I think, where Capaldi's, not nasty side, but darker side maybe, that's where it, 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 the balance is best struck. Yeah. Oh, absolutely agree. And he was brilliant all the way through this. I mean, I referenced the pilot um, earlier. I think he was most like he was in the pilot here. Not not just because of the lecturing and stuff that had parallels, but just in general, I think he was at the top of his game, and I think he was at the top of his game in the pilot. That's not to say he hasn't been really, really good in all the other episodes this series as well. I think he's been great in all of them. But I just got a bit of a pilot vibe from this one. I just thought, oh, this is right back where it needs to be. This is great. I think what it does demonstrate is that Capaldi in any script is pretty good. Capaldi, given the right dialogue, is phenomenally good. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we have this twist at the end that the Doctor is now blind. And I thought, wow, okay. Like, it was one thing for him to be blinded. I thought, okay, that's something different. That's new. Okay, he's injured in a serious way. But then he was getting fixed. He said, you know, there's there's things on the TARDIS I can fix it with. I can even use some lizard eyes. I think they'll fit, you know, that he's got on the TARDIS for some reason. Yeah. Obviously, he's fixed Nardole as well, which is something we'll get to a bit later. Um so I thought, oh, this will be a no-brainer. But the fact that his eyes are more permanently damaged, and that seems to be extending even into the next episode, wow, that's something new. I did pick it when he had the line, are we back in the TARDIS now? Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and as I say, I'm not normally one to pick these things, but when he said that, I thought, ah, he doesn't know where he is. He's still blind. Wow. Yeah, I didn't pick that up on the first go-through. And, and then when he had the hangover shades on in the last scene, it was it was very obvious, but... Yeah, the the penny started to drop then for me, and I think, wow, th- this is going to be really interesting. And, and will he stay blind for this? This is a three-parter coming up. Is he blind for all three parts? I'm already leaping ahead to the next three episodes. <laughs> um, surely he gets his sight back at some point. Well, he would he would have to, and kudos to them for actually injuring the Doctor in this way and not going for the quick or easy fix. You, you could imagine in some past series or some past episodes, there would be the, you know... 
hand waving, oh, I'll use a bit of regeneration magic to fix my eyes or something. You, you know, there'll, there'll be that quick fantasy fix. And I like that they haven't gone down that path. It'll be interesting to see how they do it. And I get the feeling they're going to play the guilt angle from Bill's point of view a bit. She's going to feel that he sacrificed his sight to save her. Well, well, he did. I mean, that's that's a, a fact. Yeah. And how she responds to that emotionally will be quite interesting. And indeed how Nardole responds to that. Because, well, we saw his lecture at the end of the episode. Indeed. Well, look, shall we talk about Nardole a bit? Sure. His lecturing, his bossiness. There are times where I think I don't like the way Nardole talks to the Doctor, but I think it's actually quite right and quite interesting and gives us this new sort of dynamic in the TARDIS alongside Bill. And there are often times where I th- I'm not even thinking, oh, that's Matt Lucas playing a character. I'm actually getting invested in the character. So I'm I'm really quite happy with him. I know you've not been as happy with Matt Lucas in general, um, but I'm just wondering how you're feeling about him now that you've seen him do a bit more in this episode than just pop up at the end standing in front of the vault. I think that the scenes like the ones that he had on Earth, the ones that he had in the TARDIS, for example, were very well done. He performed them well, and they were tonally very appropriate. I like the fact that he called out the Doctor's obvious fake out of, you know, go to, was it Birmingham for crisps or whatever it was? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that, that all worked. My problem with him, though, still remains that there are times when it feels like, oh, we haven't given Nardol a funny line for a while. Let's give him a funny line or let's give him a humorous sequence or let's have you make a funny noise. And I didn't think that that worked for the story. Mm. I often thought that those moments were out of out of tone for the story. But having seen now the good Nardle, the, the serious Nardle, the intelligent Nardle, seeing him go back to the comedy relief Nardle, to me, looks even more out of place and you sort of go come on you're better than this like mm. I've, I've got i've gone from oh god he's just the annoying comedy sidekick to the the guy who's the annoying comedy sidekick who can be better yeah yeah i can ride it out a bit and and just get through it but i understand exactly what you're saying i i totally get what you're saying and of the two obviously you like the more serious one so it does beg the question of then why does he have to revert to being a joker um I don't mind, for example, if he's a bit of a joker in the light-hearted cold open before the credits run, because everything's a bit light then, we haven't got into the, into the drama, but that seems to be where he's, where he's the more serious. Mm. And then when the tension's supposed to be at its height, he's back to comic relief. Yeah, so I, I guess to go back to the pilot, you may have liked the scene where the, uh, yay, we got there in the little handshake scene, because that was fun and sort of funny, but not over the top funny. Is is that the kind of, just the more, the, the lighter kind of Nardole that might be okay with the darker Nardole? It's when he goes really, really silly that you're not into it? It's it's when it's faked. Yeah. So when, when the humour comes naturally from the dialogue and naturally from the story, I'm very comfortable with it. I feel that there's a little bit too much forced. Let's give him a funny line now. Let's give him a funny moment now. Whether it's because that's how they've planned the character, whether there's a sense of, hey, we've got Matt Lucas. We've got to make sure that he at least gets a few laughs. I, I don't know whether that's even a conscious or a subconscious part. And I suspect for a lot of people, they're enjoying it. And I'm not claiming to be leading any crusade here, but you ask me my opinion and mm. there are still scenes of him that great with me. That's perhaps says more about me than him. I don't know. 
Well, there was the toilet humour back in the pilot. You know, ooh, I wouldn't go in there for a minute or two if I was you. Which, oh, yeah, there was, wasn't which, there? Which, yeah, which ties into something I want to reference here. And again, something I referenced earlier in this episode as well, the Doctor rebuilding him. I'm really confused as to what Nardal is or isn't. Because in this, he made some reference to his face, and I didn't have time to go back and rewind and actually catch the line. But it was almost like he was saying his face wasn't real either. And I'm I'm quite confused. I thought the Doctor had maybe built him a robot body and put the real head back on top, to, as taken out of the King Hydroflax power armour. Nuts and bolts fell off him in the first episode. But he uses the bathroom, and in this episode, which is why I'm raising it, he, he needs to breathe. He needed the oxygen yeah. just as much as them. So he is organic, but he's not organic, and he is a robot, but he's not a robot, and he's, is his face real or not real? I'm really confused as to what Nardal is, and I'm just wondering whether that that might be something bigger. I know we're not up to Arquatch yet, but is there something more to Nardal? Look, maybe you're right. Uh, the alternative is that they haven't really thought this character through, and perhaps if he was a character that was developed on the fly, as we believe he was to some extent, that sort of background really hasn't been thought through. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right, if there was going to be an episode that referenced him, this would surely be it. You know, you'd have that comment, well, I don't need to have a pressure suit because 90% of my body is mechanical, or I need to take less breaths because I only need enough oxygen to go around my head, not my entire body. Yeah, it, 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 it would have naturally flowed. It would have been a real sort of revelation. Like, here, Bill, you can have what's in my cylinder. I don't need it. And her eyes could just bulge and, wow, you're a robot. Oh, my God. You know, it, yes, it could have come out here, but it didn't. So it could be it could be either one of these things. It could be they haven't thought it through. <laughs> Quite possibly they haven't. But could it be something more? I, I just got that feeling from that line about his face. And now, as soon as we stop recording, I'm going to go back and watch that again to try and figure out what was going on there. Because it was very deliberate to be mentioning that. Yeah, when I saw it, I thought it could also have just been a throwaway gag. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and after what we've just been talking about, maybe it was. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the rest of the crew? The rest of the crew, I thought, were reasonably generic and bland. Um, there was the stereotypical person who doesn't believe in the Doctor, and she even pulled a gun on him at one point. I thought, could this get any more stereotypical and cliche? But I guess characters like that have to be there, but they are so predictable. We didn't really get to know the crew that well. I didn't really care for them too much. Uh, They were just there to serve a function. Um, They looked good, though. They looked like a crew. They looked realistic. The suits looked fantastic. I could believe in them in that sense. I just wasn't really invested in them. I would agree with you that they weren't written in any particularly brilliant way, and, and and you're right, they were there to serve very particular plot functions, right down to the fact that there were four left, so you could have a couple killed off along the way to make it to to increase the tension, and that still leaves you with two to have you know, rescued at the end. Yeah. That said, though, at no point did any of them detract from this episode, and the performances I thought were all really quite good, and and they did come across at least in some points as people who had some sort of background you know they they had friends they had lovers and okay it wasn't got into in in, in a great deal but for for a 45 minute episode Mm. i mean let's face it we've seen a lot worse red shirts in episodes like this in the past true very true (laughs) and even even the woman who pulled the gun on the doctor um you know she reminded me very much of journey blue 
back from the first series of Capaldi uh, pulling the gun on him, you know, with the, you know, come on, do it right, do it right scene, you know, with, mm. with her pulling the gun on him. And these characters are cliched, they are stereotypical, but I guess I can still believe, to some degree at least, that they're scared and they're just trying to force a resolution. They're just trying to make something happen with, with what they've got, which is a gun. That's that's all they've got, and they're desperate. So I get it. It's just a little bit predictable sometimes. And I must admit, I did enjoy the line, and I laughed out loud, and for a while this sequence was going to be my play of the day until it was overtaken. But the line... Oh, great, we've rescued a racist. Oh, my God, yes. yes. <laughs> that was really good. Speaking of the racist, let's talk about Bill. Um, <laughs> to me, she was back to being sharp and switched on. After last episode's dose of the dumb, where she's walking around this house that's creaking and weird stuff's going on, she's like, yeah, there's no problem here, Doctor, go home. Here she was back to being how I think Bill should be. I thought she was just fantastic. You know, her fear that the suit kept messing up all the time and it was controlling her was just was just awesome. And that scene where she's in and out of consciousness as the Doctor saves her as they're walking out in, in space, I thought that was just brilliantly done, partly because of the editing and partly because of her acting as well. Uh, she was fantastic in this she was above all human she was utterly relatable utterly utterly relatable in a way that and and i know others will disagree with me here and send us your thoughts because we love people to write in and disagree with us we're not we're you know we're not we're not gurus here we're just two two guys with opinions that's right hello at the dwshow.net i thought we saw a sense of genuine relatable humanity from Bill, and in the, in this episode, and indeed across the season, but particularly in this episode, in a way that I don't think we've seen for the rest of Moffat's run. I think you have to go back to Donna to really get that. I think both Amy and particularly Clara always had an air of smugness or superiority or invulnerability around them. They were the reason for the plot, or they were the most super important person in the history of the show. You know, th- there was always this invulnerability about them. And Bill is utterly vulnerable, and she's utterly human. And and that scene where she started shouting for her mother when she thought she was about to die, you know, I can't imagine that from any companion for several years now. And that, to me, is exactly the function of a companion, somebody that is the human and, and, and like us and vulnerable like us in this weird science fiction adventure that's led by a guy who can you know, regenerate as many times as he wants now, nowadays, you know, mm. and is invulnerable. I thought she did, she did the role brilliantly. I was, I was really blown away by this. And for me, and I know for a number of people that I've spoken to, Bill has been a big part of the success of this season so far, that really effective companion role. Again, I know others disagree. Others love Amy, love Clara and see things differently. That's fine. I'm not, Again, I'm not leading a crusade, but Bill to me is a big plus of this series, and she was really good in this episode. Yeah, well, that's precisely what I was going to say. People out there do love Clara and do love Amy, and so I'm going to play devil's advocate. Not not that I was really into those two characters at all, so I'm, I'm really trying hard to play devil's advocate here. Is it perhaps that there are people in real life who are smug and who are like that, and they're just people that you and I perhaps don't like, whereas Bill is someone we would actually have a beer with, to use an Aussie expression, or we'd like to hang out with. And and we, we're relating to her and seeing these good things in her because she's the kind of person we'd like to, to hang out with, whereas other people might really enjoy hanging out with Clara, but we're not those people. 
that, that's certainly a very reasonable and valid explanation that I, I don't write off at all. Um, if, if we're going to sort of carry this on as a devil's advocate conversation, I think we can. My comeback to that would be twofold. Firstly, yes, you do get more smug and confident people in real life. Yep, that's fine. Uh, does that confidence extend to being in a space station, you know, about to die or being on an alien world or whatever the, the, the threat might be of the week? I don't know that those people would maintain that. So was that realistic? I don't know. Mm. Uh, the second is that nevertheless, this isn't a real person. This is a character. It's been written by a script writer, overseen by a showrunner. To me, they should be fulfilling a certain function of the plot, which is to be our relatable figure. The one that we sit there and f fear for and are scared for and are happy for and, and the like. And, and look, there's a limit to how those roles are going to work because, you know, let's let's be honest, we're two blokes in our, you know, mid-30s, early 40s, whatever. Mm -hmm. We're not going to relate to a 20-year-old woman yeah, in the same way. You know, very rarely, very rarely in the whole of Doctor Who has there been a companion I've personally related to. Um, Adric's probably the only one that really has filled that for me in 50 years. But... I thought Bill did that job or the job I expect of a companion better. Uh, that's it. I'm not dismissing that. It, it is, of course, sometimes just down to personal taste, as you say. I don't dismiss that at all. Yeah, uh, quite fair. Quite fair, too. Do you think the scene where she's thinking of her mum and we have that still picture of her mother up on the screen next to her head, do you think that was just conveying she's really, really thinking of her mother and she's thinking of that photo, perhaps? Was it trying to say something more? The Doctor's obviously gone back in time. He's obviously met her mother. Was there more to that scene than perhaps we might think? Or was it just she was thinking of Mum? It's a good theory. It's one that I think is very, very possible. Uh, we have had a few very deliberate hints at or references to Bill's mother over the course of a few episodes, this one in particular, uh, now, whether that is a bit of a Chekhov's gun, we're keeping Bill's mother at the front of the audience's mind because there will be a role for her at some point, mm -hmm. maybe, or, or maybe it's just part of making her relatable and we're not seeing something like that. I, I, again, personal opinion, I hope that it is just what it looks like on screen. I, I don't want there to be something special or unique or timey-wimey or anything about Bill. I just want her to be a normal one. I just want to be one of us. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to be one of us, yeah, so... But but what you say is very reasonable, and I could see it going that way. I had to ask the question, though, with it being Mother's Day here in Australia, of course. Oh, yeah, so it is. <laughs> and don't panic. If you're overseas, it's not Mother's Day for you. We have Mother's Day at a different time of year. You haven't missed it. You don't have to rush out and buy presents. <laughs> it's Mother's Day in Australia. Okay, well, that's that's all I've got. Any other thoughts from you, Rob? No, I'm I'm pretty much ready to zip into Word of the Week. Okay, well... I went first, so my word of the week, again, had a double meaning. Cold is what I went for, mm -hmm. and part of that was to reflect the coldness of space and that oppressive nature of space as a character in this that we've spoken about, and also cold because I thought the death count was high, mm -hmm. even though you didn't see 36 or indeed 38 crew members killed. There were 38 people killed in this. It opened with somebody's uh, wife or certainly lover, you know, dying just after she professes that she wants to have a kid with him. And, and it went through on that sort of tone. So I thought it was a really bleak and cold story in a couple of ways. I knew she was a goner the moment she said that. 
<laughs> yeah, look, you can see what they were doing. I, I, I'm not saying I was shocked or surprised, uh, but but the fact that they did do it was was very cold. And I, I noted when I sent out a tweet just before I started watching it, this episode opened on um, its Australian view with a warning for anybody under the age of 15 that there were horror tropes and um, think twice before you watch it. I think we had the same before last week's episode as well. Uh, we, we've had a couple of warnings before, but I don't think we've had an outright horror one. Okay. And I'm not sure if we had a, a, a 15 plus one for the, before. Mm, I'd have to go back and check. But yeah, it certainly was at the start of this episode. I noted that too. Yeah, which is interesting because there has been some criticism more in the UK, I think, that maybe this is not the sort of story that you can watch with your kids or not the sort of season that you can watch with your kids. And if the ABC is actively saying, hey, if you're under 15, maybe this isn't for you. Mm. Well, that's a pretty large part of the traditional Doctor Who audience that some parents may be saying don't watch it. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody over about 11 or 12 would have a problem with this. Don't get me wrong. But I thought it was unusual for a Doctor Who, particularly a modern Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, don't we always say 15, 16 is often where the kids are starting to, to rack off from Doctor Who? And, you mm. know, I'm too old for this. And they go away for a while before they come back and get their, you know, their senses back. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting. And I'll be interested to see how that debate progresses across fandom over the next week or so. But, Rob, I haven't been able to work out at all what Neighbouring is about. <laughs> so please explain it to myself and the listeners. Okay. Neighbouring... It's it's a fairly cryptic one, and it doesn't have dual meanings or anything, simply because, to me, it was so close to being a really, really good episode. It was right next door to being yeah, a okay. really, really good episode. Okay. It was neighbouring, Dave. <laughs> okay. I can, I can respect that. So, I may have kind of given away what I might give it for a score. Shall I go first? Yeah, you might as well. Keep going. I think this is the best of the series, and it would have been a 9 out of 10 for me with a little more originality if we hadn't gone down those old tropes of almost everybody living and technology that's just doing its thing, etc, etc. But I am still giving it 8 out of 10 and calling it my favourite episode of the series thus far. Well, I'm also going to give it an 8 out of 10. I've given one before as well. This is probably my favourite. If, if, if I was doing decimal points... You know, this would be an 8.2 or an 8.3 or something. Just, I would give it this, that little bit extra to, to put it just above uh, Thin Ice. But, yeah, it's it's another in that run. I mean, I gave I gave a six last week. Otherwise, it's been two sevens and two eights. And is that the sound of hell freezing over? We've agreed on a score two weeks in a row. Yeah, it, it, it could be. It certainly feels like it down here at the moment. <laughs> Shall we hit the sports desk? Let's go. at the sports desk as always each week we discuss the mvp of the week the play of the week and the foul of the week shall we start with mvp dave uh yeah so my earlier comments maybe gave this away i was tossing up for a while whether to give it to capaldi again but i've gone with my mvp of the week being pearl Mackey as bill i thought this is her best performance so far of the season the character was nailed her performance was nailed there are a couple of Scenes that, you know, could have been quite heart-wrenching in some ways. Really good performance. MVP for me. I tossed up between Mackie and Capaldi as well. I found it so incredibly hard to split them. I've fallen 
on the side of Capaldi, just because throughout the episode he had little bits here and there that I think just added to things. Bill had the big, you know, set-piece moments, and Bill had some amazing moments, and Bill was great through the whole episode. She is almost my MVP of the week. But Capaldi, just, just here and there, just little lines, sometimes, you know, half half-spoken, very quiet, you know, light and shade. He he just had it all, and gosh, it was close, but I've Capaldi by a nose, Dave. Oh, well, there you go. Round five, Oxygen, Capaldi, three votes. Who was your player of the week, or what was your player of the week? My player of the week is Blinding the Doctor. I thought that was just really interesting, and the fact that it, it hasn't been magicked away at the end of the episode, and it will continue on, is something... I'm really interested and intrigued about. I think it's something new and different, and I thought that's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, it certainly was a play that changes the dynamic of the episode and the season, so I get why you've gone with it. I went with something you've actually already referenced, Rob, and I thought it might have been your your pick for play, Mm -hmm. and that is the the entire spacewalk sequence from when Bill realises that her helmet doesn't work and you're not sure how she's going to get out of it, and then you see her suffering from the oxygen deprivation, you see those flashes of them walking across the ship, you then see Capaldi without his helmet, and you go, he's given her his helmet, I get it, okay, and then they go through, and and, and the way it was all done from her point of view, coming in and out of consciousness, was really good dramatically, it felt tense, it was brilliantly filmed, imaginatively filmed, I thought that was a really good play for this episode that really helped elevate the episode overall. Yeah, fantastic part of the episode. Totally agree. That would be my number two play of the week. Okay, so my foul of the week. I thought long and hard about this. For a while, I was a little bit tempted to give it to the very last shot of the trailer at the end. Uh, But that's just a personal opinion. I went for all the stuff with Nardal talking about the ex-girlfriend. Now, some people, I think, will actually have that as a favourite part of the episode for them. And I have absolutely no problems with that if that's how you feel. Some people will have found it very funny. I thought it was a very good example of silliness and detensification of what should have been an ongoingly tense scene. I thought it was out of place. It was out of tone. Matt Lucas performed it perfectly well. I'm not criticising him, but it didn't work for me. And uh, in an episode where I'm really trying to engage with the seriousness of it, and the the drama of it, uh, those sequences for me were just oh I'll, I'll get on with you know, get on with the real episode. This is annoying. This is stupid. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, it, it recalled for me uh, a James Bond movie. I think it's Pierce Brosnan's second movie where he goes to I think he's in Berlin and he gets given his BMW to drive and he gets in and the the sat nav or the onboard computer starts talking in a female German accent and he goes I think we've met and it's just that one line. <laughs> You know, and, and that was quite funny. Here, though, it became this whole almost Douglas Adamsy thing. Like, you know, it's it's very comedic, and he's had this relationship with this computer voice, and ah, yeah, it did get a bit silly, and it did get dragged on. In James Bond, it was like, I think we've met. Ha! Funny line. Move on. And, and you know what? Had it been that one line, I would have probably thought it was really good. Uh, it, it was the dragging out of it over the course of a scene that is the reason why I've given it the foul. Yeah. Fair enough. My foul, very quickly, I've already touched on it. It's retreading themes that have been in every episode this series, even if it did them the best. Even if this is the best episode of the series so far for me, it still does retread some themes. It's like, oh, gosh, what if this had been a little bit different here and there? What if, what if? But it's so close. It's neighbouring, Dave. (laughs) So it is. Uh, 
I don't have any other thoughts before we wrap up. As I said, I'm, I'm enjoying this series. My friends are enjoying this series. You know, we've made some criticisms along the way because we're, we're doing that analysis. But don't anybody doubt, I think, how much we are enjoying these five episodes so far. Yeah, yeah. Like, as I said, many of them, you know, have been in the six and seven range for me, but I'm still really quite enjoying and there's no one where I've gone, oh, God, that was just awful. What on earth were they thinking? Terrible, terrible. Ah! You know, and I've ran from the room screaming. Nothing like that. It's been very consistent, if simple. All right, shall we move into our listener messages? Yes, we've got quite a few this week, so let's rattle through them. The first is from Martin, who is on Twitter as Beer is the Answer at MJPO007. Hello, Martin. Martin's been sending us heaps of messages lately, um, and I was going to read some of his tweets, but then just before this episode was recorded, he sent us comments on this episode. So this is a first. Normally we're talking about the previous week's episode. Oh, well done, Martin. Yeah, thank you, Martin. So he says, hello, guys. Great show. Enjoyable reviews of each episode to date. Love the immediacy of the recording. First impressions are so important. Thank you, Martin. He says uh, of this episode, distress call, tick, base under siege, tick, good start. But I feel I missed the middle part of the story. We seem to get to the end rather quickly. The Vault and The Promise are both mentioned again. The reveal at the end and the next time both felt like they were there to make up for what went before. The episode was good, but while I'm enjoying and will always love Who, I'm feeling shortchanged at the moment. Keep up the good work, guys, from the UK. Thank you, Martin. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dave? That's a really interesting take, so thank you, Martin, for that. I think he was right about what the good bits were. Interesting that the series doesn't seem to be firing for him, and it'll be I'll be very curious to hear... If when we start to get someone to some of these uh, multi-part Stephen Moffat episodes, or the more traditionally Moffat episodes, that I think we are expecting to come shortly, whether that changes his view. But yeah, interesting thoughts. Yeah, stay in touch, Martin. So I've got a message here from Mike, who tweets out M.A. Sulko. Hi, guys. I meant to send this off sooner, but the week got away from me. I enjoyed Knock Knock more than most, it would seem. It was flawed, but strong enough to make up for those flaws. The big takeaway for me is the Doctor acting hypocritically enough to make even the Seventh Doctor outraged. We see him giving an appeal to the landlord and his mother that living in isolation is no way to live, capped up with a fireworks show from the uni fresher. Cut to later, and we see the Doctor approaching whoever is locked up in that vault, trying to feed them, bringing them word of the outside world. Is it a case of the A-plot mirroring the B-plot in a subtle fashion? Thanks, Mike. Interesting, Mike. I hadn't looked at it that way. You're right. How can he coax somebody out of self-imposed prison whilst keeping what we assume is a someone else in prison? Interesting way to look at it. Yeah, but I mean, isn't that the doctor in some ways? He can be quite hypocritical at times. Even that little speech he gave to Bill back in Thin Ice um, of, you know, I'm 2,000 years old and I've never had the luxury of outrage. And yet you could go back in your head and pull out all these clips of the Doctor being outraged at things and thinking, yes, you have. You do it all the bloody time. (laughs) What's wrong with you? Yeah, that's true. But yeah, good thought. All right. This one is from J.R. Southall, obviously from the Blue Box podcast. Hello, J.R. Hello. He says, I was listening to your knock-knock episode yesterday morning, and I thought I'd send you a PM regarding a couple of points. Rob wondered why only the recent batch of students survived at the end. That was because they hadn't been digested yet. Previous victims had all been used up, hence the need for new recruits. You also spoke about cyber conversion and how horrifying that made death in heaven, but that betrays a misunderstanding of the story. Missy simply uses the blueprints of the Cybermen to create her own through nanotechnology, with the suits being grown around the victims rather than bolted onto them. As for that, including the Brigadier, in the end of time, everybody on Earth is turned into the Master, but for the Doctor, Wilf and Donna. 
And that includes not only the Brigadier, but also Sarah Jane, Sergeant Benton, Joe Grant, Ian Cheston, and everyone else we love besides. Is that so great a difference? Dave, I'll throw this over to you, and then I'll address the first part. Oh, yeah, thanks for that. Look, I'm, I'm not going to relitigate at length um, the ongoing disagreement that JR and I have about whether Death in Heaven is a great episode, or in my <laughs> case, my least favourite episode ever. We've, we've had that debate. Um, I will simply say in response to his queries, because they're really good points, and I certainly respect his view, and I'm happy to... You know, listen and argue and debate and respect it. I still think that cyber conversion, however it's done, and I'm still not quite sure what was going on in Death and Heaven, but however you do the actual process of cyber conversion, I think cyber conversion is a pretty horrific thing, and I I, I stand by that comment. Um, is there a great difference between what happened in Death in Heaven and what happened in uh, End of Time? I'll, I'll make two points. One is that at the end of End of Time, everybody's changed back. Two, the people weren't aware of what was happening, whereas it's implied the Brigadier would be very well aware of the fact he was now a Cyberman. And, and, and I guess three, in some ways, uh, end of time, that stuff was almost played for laughs because you had, you know, the Master as Obama, the Master in a dress. Uh, Death in Heaven, whatever else you say about it, wasn't played for laughs. So, yeah, look, different perspectives. Respect what you're saying, JR. Thanks for writing in. And, yeah, always good to hear different opinions. Uh, I, I still... I'm not changing my mind on death in heaven, sorry. Absolutely. And for me, about the uh, recent batch of students surviving at the end of Knock Knock, I can take on board that, okay, the others have been digested, the ones from 1977, 1957, and so on. But uh, it's still a sticking point for me in terms of how they're, they're, they're shredded molecule from molecule, and they must begin to be eaten to some degree. This is why maybe I would have liked to have seen one or two of Bill's friends maybe not come back. You know, some of them could have been magicked back, and it is really magic when you've been shredded molecule by molecule that a wood lice can somehow crap you out again as a whole person is, is very magical. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, maybe have some of them crapped back out, but some of them have been digested or partially digested or oh, maybe I'm just getting too complex. I just would have liked to have seen something more akin to this episode we've just had where not all of the crew came back to life. In fact, only Bill did. Yeah, I think that that really goes to the heart of what a lot of people have been saying about Knock Knock. And then, I, I don't think a lot of people think it's an awful episode. I said, no, we certainly didn't think it was awful. But there are a number of things where, to use the Terence Dix um, phrase, they could have covered it with a line. Yeah. And had the Doctor had a comment, you know, those people won't be coming back because or, or whatever. And indeed, there are a number of things in Knock Knock that we're still not quite sure about. A couple of just quick explanation lines as they're running away from their house or something may have just lifted a few of those moments of confusion. But, yeah, what JR says is perfectly logical and reasonable, and, yeah, I'm I'm happy to buy it. All righty. What have you got there, Dave? I've got one from Drinking in the Park, or at Neil and Johnny. They say, loved a knock-knock, but found the decisions the students made unbelievable, and it took me right out of the episode. Loved PCAP and the jokes about his age, but could have done without the lingering shots on Tree Woman or whatever that was about. Woman. <laughs> Neil and I agree with Dave. Needed another draft in the script stages to answer the realistic questions it brought up and never attempted to answer. Why were the bugs helpful to the mum but ate everyone else? Why was the old man made to seem out of time but not? And why didn't Alyssa Milano save the day with a magic spell of charm? <laughs> yeah, look, I think that you're echoing there, guys, exactly the points that we had. We discussed it last week. So, yeah, nice to know we're not alone on that. I think I think you're right. 
Yes, I was charmed by that email, Dave. <laughs> Moving on, Kathleen Cruikshank at Cats Catspaws, both with K's on Twitter. She says, I'm giving this another four out of ten again and being generous again. I was thinking a class Doctor Who type episode myself or House of Bones meets the Mummy Scarabs. I thought this episode would be like Hyde, but drat, nope. I do agree that Capaldi's performance was good in this too. I was hoping when the Doctor asked the Landlord who the PM was and he said Harriet Jones, that the Landlord would have said, yes, I know who she is. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that, Kathleen. Yeah, that would have been quite funny. Yeah, a shame you're not enjoying it as much as we are, Kathleen. Hopefully some future episodes are more your style. Yeah, some Mondaysian Cybermen coming right up. Another from our regular contributor, Stephen B, at Steed underscore Stalin, who I believe is getting on board my campaign to make Harry a new companion. Very good. Uh, He says, so I guess by now you guys know that I loved the Hinchcliffe out of this one. Suchet is so sinisterly perfect, and the tone is very season 13. Big tick. So there we've got the other side of the opinions on this one. Glad you enjoyed that, Steve, and uh, hope you uh, keep enjoying. Hope you really enjoyed this one. And we'll do our plug again. Steve is one third of the New to Who podcast, so do look that podcast up. And recently appeared on the Blue Box podcast with J.R. Southall, who wrote our earlier email. So just like Dirk Gently says, everything's connected. No, that's right. I enjoyed their Terror of the Zygons episode. I'm looking forward to their Terror of the Autons episode and quietly hoping that next they do Terror of the Vervoids, just to keep the theme. And that's our email and tweets for this week. If you have any comments, you can, of course, tweet us, Facebook us, or write to hello at the dwshow.net, which now brings us to our final segments, ArcWatch and FanWatch. Look, I think the ArcWatch is pretty straightforward. We actually ha- we obviously have the Doctor Blinder that's going to continue through the series and maybe have particular ramifications, and we've seen more of the Vault. <laughs> Something is in there. Uh, Nardole was playing the ambiguous pronoun game when he spoke about the contents of what was in the vault, lots of <laughs> theirs and that and it rather than he's or she's. Yes. So, look, we'll learn more about that later. Can I make one point here, Rob, because I had my rant about the vault last week. Yes. In addition to that, why does everybody assume that what's in the vault is something from the past? Why can't it, Why does it have to be the Sim Master or the Missy Master or a Dalek or a... Michael Grade or Barry Whitehouse. Yeah, what, why does it have to be something we know? Why can't it be a whole new original creation? Wouldn't that be wonderful? In this new series where we're just having fun, good adventures and new ideas and new stories without being tied to the past, wouldn't it be great if what was in the vault turned out to be something completely original? That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, look, it would be wonderful. I guess uh, in those situations, though, we don't know what we don't know, so we couldn't name something we don't know. Um, that's probably what stops them. But nobody's come out and said, hey, everybody, have a guess what's in the vault. You're all going to know what it is, and you'll kick yourself when you find out answers on a postcard sent to, you know, post office box 3000 in your capital city. Mm. You know, nobody's done that. We've, we've chosen to do that. It could well be that we had no chance of predicting what was in there. It's going to be a really big surprise and an original one. Yeah, my, my thoughts are still strongly with Missy at this stage, as obvious as that seems. Well, given the next time trailer, she's clearly about... She's about, and we have heard that the vault will open before the end of the series, so it could be. And so I think on to Fanwatch, because I, I concur with you on uh, on the arc, and it's pretty much the vault. Fanwatch, I think it'll be the Doctor's blindness, people talking about that in different ways, both as a, a plot device and, and also as a, as a way, perhaps, I don't know, of showing people out there who are vision-impaired that, you know, look, here's, here's your hero, he's vision impaired this week or for a couple of weeks perhaps. That could be quite a, a good thing, you know. Uh, it could be an issue that gets brought into the show. Um, 
who knows you know i think that's probably the big thing that's carrying on that is is really quite different and i don't think we've seen before no pun intended <laughs> goodness <laughs> uh, i think you're right uh, i also noted here that there was a little bit more social justice worrying here now i didn't really care or notice or mind it but if people got worked up about the social justice worrying that they perceived in thin ice then the the racism stuff and the anti-capitalist stuff may get a run um, and look, needless to say, that last shot of the next time trailer will exercise a lot of fans for better or ill in the next week, I suspect. Mm. Which just brings us to next week, an extremist. It's got the Pope, it's got Missy, it's got weird monsters, and Pete is still blind. I'm I'm quite looking forward to this one, Dave. How about you? Uh, I'm interested in any story that involves a bit of Vatican intrigue and strange goings-on in that sense, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, look, it's no secret that I'm not a fan of Missy, so I um, won't say I'm looking forward to her, but I'm doing my best to keep an open mind about how she could be in this episode, and maybe she just appears in the last scene of this episode. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I'm keeping an open mind on that point. Yeah, the Doctor being called into troubleshoot at the Vatican, that's quite cool. Although, you know, something I've been thinking in the last few weeks, actually, what happened to the Doctor being President of the World? Did, did, did that concept just finish, or is he still president of the world? Uh, anything that implies that death in heaven didn't happen <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> and has been, been removed from the continuity of the show, I'm happy to just leave that sleeping dog lie, Rob. Fair enough. And on that note, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.